So Ezra chapter 1, which on the Holy Bible with just the words is on page 334, and on the other Red Pew Bible it's on page 473. So Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to, to, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites Everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the, king, sorry, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar brought these all along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Let's uh, bow in prayer. Uh, <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for uh, giving us your word. And we pray now as we uh, consider your word here and also in Kids Church that uh, you, by your spirit, would be working in our hearts and minds. Uh, helping us to get to know you better, uh, that we would have more confidence as we seek to live with Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, do you sometimes feel that the world is a bit of a shaky place? I reckon you might have felt that way if you are in Southern California during this week when a 6.4 magnitude earthquake struck and a thousand uh, after tremors. Uh, I, um, I saw some of the news footage of that, uh, footage of houses literally shaking, <clears throat> of roads bending, and you've got to love the, the, uh, the, the, the footage of inside the supermarkets, don't you? With all of the, <clears throat> you know, the cans of soup and some, you know, falling off the shelves and crashing onto the, uh, onto the floor. But it's not just earthquakes, uh, international politics makes the world seem shaky. Um, 
we may feel comfortable with and settled with the world order as it is, and then a new superpower begins to emerge, and suddenly we feel less settled and we feel less certain about the future. Sometimes, as Christians, we can uh, feel that things are getting a bit shaky as well, can't we? Our confidence in God gets stress-tested from time to time. And, uh, you know, when, we, when we're under pressure, uh, for example, when social changes uh, mean that our settled position of being, of, of being more in the centre of uh, the culture of our society uh, means that we find ourselves... Uh, further to the edges, to the margins of society and uh, we can feel that things are a bit shaky for us. We can perhaps even in our weaker moments wonder uh, what is God doing? Um, Where is this all heading? How is God achieving his purposes through us? These are good questions but they're, they're not new questions. Uh, today we're going to be um, starting a sermon series on the book of Ezra and uh, it's, you know, it's one of the less well-known books of the Old Testament, I think. Uh, it's a book that um, we don't always you know, jump to as being the first part of the, new, of the Old Testament that we'd want to read through. But it's a little book which helps us to grapple with some huge issues uh, of what God uh, did amongst his people, what God is doing amongst us now and what God will be doing uh, into the future. I want to encourage you during the week if, um, to set aside some time and to read through the book of Ezra. You can, you can do it in one sitting. It's only 11 chapters. Um, chapter 2, um, well, you might want to skip over some of those names, but um, I want to challenge, I want to encourage you to uh, read through Ezra during the week. One of the reasons I've chosen Ezra is because it helps us to understand more of the storyline of the Bible. Um, those of you who are regular amongst us will remember that last year we worked through the whole books of 1 and 2 Chronicles in church. And uh, that was great because uh, starting with Adam, uh, right in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, it took us through the history of Israel, particularly with regards to the priests, the temple and uh, the kings. And we finished up, well, 2 Chronicles ends up in tears, doesn't it? In fact, if you open up your Bibles now at Ezra, that'd be a really terrific thing to do. Um, one of the things about Ezra is that the way that the Bible books are placed in order uh, is that it comes straight after two chronicles and if we have a look at the last chapter of two chronicles two, ch two chronicles chapter 36 um, what was going on what what was happening there well if you look at the subtitles you can see that one of those subtitles says the fall of jerusalem uh, because in two chronicles 36 the babylonians under king nebuchadnezzar had invaded um, Jerusalem. Um, God's people were defeated. Uh, God's people were stripped of everything that they had uh, put their confidence in. The, uh, the temple was destroyed. Uh, the city was in ruins. 
And they, God's people, were now taken out of the land uh, as exiles in Babylon. And so the Babylonian exile had begun. Now, to the Jews, this was absolutely catastrophic. Because remember the promises that God made to Abraham, that they would be God's people living in God's land under God's rule. Well, now the land has been taken away from them. And they are now living as captives uh, in Babylon. And so this is not just catastrophic in terms of the the politics of it. Uh, This is catastrophic in terms of their identity as the people of God. And they may well have wondered, what is God doing in our world? What is God doing amongst us? And so we come to Ezra chapter 1 and in verse 1 we read uh, that in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. And so here we are introduced to King Cyrus, the king of Persia. The the Babylonian Empire had been ruled by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son, uh, King Belshazzar. Uh, He was the the Babylonian king who in Daniel chapter 5 had taken the the goblets, the wine goblets that that his father had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem and had brought back to Babylon. Uh, he was the king who took those gold um, goblets out of storage and used them in a drunken feast uh, that he uh, put on for him and his friends, a drunken party. And it was on that night, that occasion of that drunken feast, uh, using these sacred objects from the temple in Jerusalem to get drunk with, that his world suddenly became rather shaky as he saw a a human hand uh, miraculously writing some stuff on the wall um, in Aramaic, writing judgment on the wall, judgment upon him. This, of course, is where we get the the saying, the writing's on the wall, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, When you see the writing on the wall, you know it's going to happen. And that very night, the army of Persia invaded and they they defeated the Babylonians. Um, This is not fantasy, by the way. This is not just some kind of uh, fairy tale story. Historians uh, know the precise date that this happened. Um, they've, They've got it down to a particular day. Uh, This happened on October the 16th, 539 BC. How's that for precision? Uh, This is an historical event. The Persians were led by King Cyrus. Now, normally uh, the invasion of one land by another ruler means uh, just replacing one oppressive ruler with another oppressive ruler, but not this time. For what was one of the first things that the new ruler of Babylon did? 
Well, he made a proclamation allowing the Jews to go home. He even put it in writing. Let's have a look at that again. Verse 2. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now, this is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, he, he wants to liberate the Jews. He, he wants God's temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And, and he wants people to provide the furnishings and the sacrifices for... We're talking about a pagan king here. So why is he doing this? I mean, it, it looks like he's been converted, doesn't it? <laughs> He calls God, he calls the Lord, that is Yahweh, um, calls him the God of heaven and earth. He confesses that Yahweh is the one who has given him all of the kingdoms of the earth. Well, as far as he knew the earth, I mean, he was over there in Persia and he'd united the Persians and the Medes and then he moved across into Asia Minor, current day um, Turkey, where he defeated King Croesus and then He's uh, there in Babylon. He has conquered those kingdoms. And he confesses that Yahweh is the one who has done it for him. What's going on here? Well, before we get too carried away, it's worth knowing that Cyrus was a very shrewd politician. You see, when the Persians conquered a land, it was actually their policy to allow anyone living there as captives to go home. Um, there's a fabulous part of the British Museum in London, uh, which is the, the, the Persia section. And uh, in pride of place there is a, a very old document uh, which was discovered in the ruined city of Babylon in 539... B uh, sorry, it was, it was discovered in 1879 and it's called the Cyrus Cylinder. Can you see the photograph of that on your outlines? Yeah. The Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, it's, a, um, uh, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a clay um, cylinder kind of shaped um, object and uh, on it... Uh, is written a proclamation from Cyrus. Can you see? That writing is, looks pretty hard to, to decipher, isn't it? Uh, cuneiform uh, writing. be very hard to dis decipher and to translate. But it's this clay cylinder which was produced in 539 BC. And in it, uh, Cyrus thanks the Babylonian god Marduk as being the God who gave him the great victory over Babylon. How about that? Uh, in the Cyrus Cylinder, uh, Cyrus depicts himself as being the great liberator and the great humanitarian who allowed exiles to go home. Um, this was Persian policy. 
Cyrus recognised that it would be complex to govern Babylon if many of the people who were living in Babylon actually didn't want to be there. Uh, and he also knew it was easier to govern an empire if he gave people freedom of worship and freedom of cultural expression. And so he allowed exiles to go home. Cyrus was a politician. Uh, to the Babylonians, he praised the Babylonian god Marduk. To the Jews, he praised the Jewish god Yahweh. At least that's what he thought. You see, behind the military victories and even behind the political strategy of the, of the Persians is in fact the mighty hand of God at work. What is the real reason that Cyrus allowed the Jews to go home? Well, in verse 1, there are two reasons. Firstly, it was in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. I wonder if you might um, keep a bulletin or a finger or something in Ezra and uh, just come with me over to Jeremiah 25 for a moment or two, if you can find that in your Bibles. If you can't find it, that's fine. Just listen, I'll read it for you. But uh, let me um, pick this up in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah prophesies before and right at the very beginning of um, the uh, first deportation of um, Jews into, into, into uh, Babylon. And he writes this in verse 8. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Get that, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to by God as being his servant because Nebuchadnezzar will be doing what God wants him to be doing. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I'll banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sounds of millstone and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how many years? Seventy years. But when the seventy years are fulfilled... I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. So what will happen after 70 years of exile? Well, the Babylonians themselves will be punished. And then uh, a bit later in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, God promises that after the 70 years... He's not just going to punish the Babylonians, that he would actually come to his people and he would bring them back to Jerusalem. And that's the passage where he tells them that it's never my plan to harm you, it's only my plan to do you good and to prosper you. And so what we see here is that God had promised the Babylonian exile in advance but that after 70 years, God's people would be returned. And it's not just Jeremiah who prophesied this. The, uh, the return from exile happened in the 6th century BC, but 150 years earlier, in the 8th century BC, the prophet Isaiah 
had prophesied the same thing, including the Persians coming and taking over Babylon and, and uh, God's people being released uh, to back to return to Jerusalem under the hand of the Persians. Now, the return of God's people from exile in Babylon, what we see here is it's not just the result of a politician trying to please the people that he'd conquered. But the second thing we see in verse 1 is that it was God who, in his sovereign power, um, actually worked in the heart of the pagan king Cyrus. So it's not saying that he was converted, but it's saying that God actually moved in his heart to cause him to do God's, uh, God's work. And that is often the case in the scriptures. Often God uses the actions of sinful men and women uh, in order to achieve his good purposes. Um, there's a great example of that in Genesis, isn't there? I wonder if you can remember Joseph. Remember Joseph? As a young, young show-off um, with his fancy coat, uh, his brothers became a bit, thought, thought he needed to be, be pulled down a few notches. And so they, what did they do? They, um, they sold him into slavery, didn't they? Um, and, and he went, uh, ended up in Egypt where he rose in position and rank and uh, during a time of great famine, uh, he was uh, Prime Minister of Egypt uh, and he was able to help his brothers when they came looking for, uh, for grain. And in Genesis chapter 50, he tells his brothers when he exposed who he was, he says, you meant to harm me, but God used it to save many lives. The greatest example, of course, of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, listen to what the Apostle Peter said when he preached to the Jews uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He, he said this of Jesus. He said, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, God uses ungodly people in order to achieve his plan. Helps us because sometimes things are happening to us that we don't quite understand and we don't, and are difficult for us. And yet we can be assured that God is still working out his purposes uh, in our own lives. And here, the Babylonian exile was God's plan to strip God's people of their pride and their arrogance to humble them so that they would become men and women who would, who would grieve. They would grieve over what they had lost. They would grieve and they would long to be restored. They would long for God. Um, we see this in, in the psalm. Um, Psalm 137, where the, the psalmist writes, By the rivers of Babylon we lay down and we, we wept. We wept. We couldn't sing songs of joy. No, we wept as we remembered Zion. Uh, we see this also in, in the book of Daniel, do we not? Uh, where where D Daniel, living in the exile, uh, when he prays, 
Where does he face? He faces Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. (laughs) But he prays facing Jerusalem. Because that's where his heart is. That's where he wants to be. And so Cyrus issued this declaration of liberty. And then in verses 5 through to 11, the return from exile begins. Let's just read verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Notice why they they wanted to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, It wasn't because of freedom. It wasn't because of their, their lifestyle. In fact, many of the Jews were doing quite well for themselves in business in Babylon. And for them to return would be to return to a, to a city that was a wasteland, that no, had no facilities, no infrastructure. But what was their top priority? It was to build a temple, to re-establish the worship of God. Now, we must never think that to, uh, to worship God means to build a church building and to do things in a church building. That's not, that's not, as we'll see next week, the temple in Jerusalem was a symbol of God dwelling amongst his people. And that is a symbol which is ultimately fulfilled, as we will see, in the coming of God in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the, in the, in the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit, so that we, uh, those of us who trust in Jesus, are in fact the true temple of God. Now, we see in chapter 2 that there were about um, 50,000 Jews who left Babylon to return to Jerusalem. And we can think of this in terms of it being um, a little bit like the Exodus. This is like God's people coming out of Egypt uh, across the the desert into the Promised Land. It's a bit like the Exodus. It's much smaller than the Exodus, And in verses 5 to 11, we see that there were lots of people who chipped in because their neighbours gave them silver and gold for the new temple and cattle so that they could make sacrifices. King Cyrus chipped in himself. He collected all of the items that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the Jerusalem temple and he gave them back. There's a list of some of this stuff in in verses 10 and 11. Have a look at it. The inventory was gold dishes, silver dishes, silver pans, gold bowls, matching silver bowls, other articles. I I don't know if the goblets were in there or not um, that uh, Belshazzar had used in his drunken feast. But But what is missing there? You know, if there was one thing that you'd want to bring back to install in the new temple, what would it be? be the Ark of the Covenant, wouldn't it? Where's the Ark of the Covenant? I don't think this is like Harrison Ford and Raiders of the Lost Ark that's buried somewhere in... Germans are after it and Nazis and... No, it, it seems that the... You know, if there was anything that they'd bring back, they'd bring back the Ark of the Covenant if it was there. And it does seem that the Ark of the Covenant was lost or destroyed 
uh, when the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem in 587 BC. Now that's not a problem because just like the temple, the Ark of the Covenant uh, is a, a, a physical object which points to a greater spiritual reality. Um, inside the Ark of the Covenant was... Um, uh, what was inside it? Well, there was the, 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 the tablets, the Ten Commandments. It symbolises God's word. Uh, there was the, the pot of, of manna, which symbolises God's provision. There was Aaron's staff that kept on budding, uh, which symbolises the new life that God gives. It points to a greater future reality when God's word... And God's provision and the new life God gives would be found in Jesus. Does the world sometimes seem shaky to you? You wonder where it's heading? You wonder sometimes what God is doing with his church? Sometimes we do wonder, don't we? We look at the church and we see that there's problems within the false teaching and the division and as we grapple with sinfulness there's problems without as we feel sometimes that we're under the pump we're being pushed to the margins of society and sometimes wonder what's god doing king cyrus charmed his jewish subjects by saying things about god which he didn't really believe but are actually true he is the God of heaven who rules over the kingdoms of the earth. Which means that we can be confident. It means that when we feel that we're being marginalised, then we, we don't despair about that. And on the flip side of that, when the, our society and our culture is, is approving of the church, we don't get overly excited about that either, do we? What we do do is we keep on trusting in God and his word. We keep on believing the truth of the gospel, seeking to be godly, telling others about Jesus and praying. Praying that God would do that which he has been doing for, uh, throughout the ages, that which we see even in, in chapter 1 praying that God would indeed be moving the hearts of men and women. For he is the King of Kings, who has, has planned a future for this world. A future where Jesus will return. For in so much that the return from exile, uh, the, the, the return from exile, is, uh, God is, is like God bringing his people out of Egypt towards the promised land. It also foreshadows that day when those who trust in Jesus will be known by the return Jesus and he will be leading us back to Jerusalem. Not the city in the Middle East, but to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem where there will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death, because there will be no more sin. And we would be gathered around the throne of God forever and ever.
praising him, honouring him, bringing glory to him. That's the future that gives us confidence to be trusting in God now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you how you worked out your promises through the um, given through Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, in the exile and in the return from the exile. Father, we pray for ourselves that we would not lose confidence in you, that though our world seems shaky, that our lives are sometimes seemingly shaky, that we would know that Jesus will return one day and we will be with you in the heavenly Jerusalem. And with that hope in mind, we pray that you would enable us by your spirit to live faithfully for you uh, even now. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.